This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio. Powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Warren Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer or so investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree affiliates. We're going to be having a really interesting show on fintech, blockchain technology, uh, with two return guests, Dan Doney of Securrency, Will Pick, one of my colleagues at Wisdom Tree, focused on emerging technologies, how we're thinking about using some of these blockchain technologies. But, Professor, uh, we're going to get some commentary from you to kick it off. Uh, you know, it's been a, a time you've been focused on the inflation areas. We've had more inflation prints, you've had Powell testifying. What are you thinking? Yeah. So, uh, yes. And as we've been saying, the inflation trends work substantially more than expected. Um, the big question that, of course, uh, everyone is asking, uh, as inflation looks like it's heating up and uh, it's going to heat up more, why is the long bond at 131? <laughs> and um, uh, yes, that does surprise me. I thought it would be higher. Uh, but I, I, when, when I'm on, uh, CNBC, I'm going to be on Bloomberg at two o'clock today. Um, I, I'm just going to tell people that there's a lot of things that in, go into interest rates, not just inflation. And the real rate is going down. The, the real 10 year is now, uh, you know, well under one minus one percent. Um, but importantly, as I as I emphasize, the 10 year is considered a, a hedge against a crisis. I mean, we have the Delta variant. I don't think that's going to turn into anything substantial. But if something else comes up, uh, you want uh, the 10 year is an excellent hedge. Um, I think it's a better hedge than actually the VIX um, uh, because VIX deteriorates at a rapid rate. So uh, people demand the hedges. They're very expensive. Um, but the demand is high, so uh, I still think the 10-year is definitely uh, going to go um, you know, up in yield. Um, but even if it doesn't go up in yield, uh, we're going to have um, – now I think we're going to have inflation that's going to print this year at 7 8 9%, which is even higher than what I thought at the beginning of the year as I look at the data. Uh, I'll also say uh, you know, even Powell admitted in his testimony before Congress – that um, it surprised him how high inflation is, is, is going. And he thinks it's temporary. Um, but if it isn't, he said, we have the tools to control it. That is the, the thing, the, the story. Uh, when you listen to his words, you definitely hear the word surprise. Now, if he'd been looking at the money supply and interpreting it the way I did, he would not have been surprise. Uh, I think uh, that the uh, FOMC meeting in a week and a half, uh, there's going to be a lot of voices. By the way, one of our um, favorite guests, and I hope we have him on again soon, um, um, uh, Bullard from Jim Bullard from the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis, is now on record as saying, you know, it is time to start uh, stop uh, tapering. You may remember, Jeremy, when we had him on about three or four months ago, he was more uh, uh, uncertain about whether inflation was really going to be a, a problem or not. Now he is stepping out there, I think, is one of the – you'll see more and more people step out. They will not have another CPI print uh, before um, uh, their meeting, So, uh, they, uh, uh, but, but nonetheless. Uh, they, they've heard what's going on. They know about uh, what, what prices have gone up, and um, the voices will be there at that at that meeting. Yeah, that was really interesting to hear Jim come out and say, you know, it's, it's time to, end, to start the taper, and uh, you know, and to be flexible about it, and see where things go, and and adjust as needed. I mean, it, 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 what do you think is becomes convincing that this is not this temporary thing? Like, how what does it take, Powell? Is it just more voices at the Fed to keep saying? 
Well, I think, honestly, a couple more prints on the CPI. Um, uh, one thing that I uh, pointed out, I, I, I was on in the afternoon on, uh, on uh, housing inflation. It's not yet in the CPI um, because of the way that we've talked about this before, but now I actually, you know, got the hard data and it's just not in there yet. I mean, you know, you, you, you really have, I think, I think housing prices are folks, housing costs are up 3.2% and owner's equivalent rent. Um, and uh, which is, you know, uh, it, it's up uh, like something like 2.6%. Um, uh, it's not yet in there. Eventually, those numbers are going to be up 20%, and that's one-third of the CPI. Um, so, uh, you know, everyone talks about used, uh, uh, you know, cars and trucks and all that. That's 3% of the CPI. Right. Yes, that's probably going to come down a bit. But the big, the big ones are not yet recorded, and uh, as a result, the prints are going to be, to me, persistently high. Um, and uh, you know, I think there will be discussion um, in the meeting, uh, the next Fed meeting. Listen, housing's not there yet, uh, and then housing comes in. Uh, how are we going to maintain that, you know, inflation is just a little bit of a, of a blip? I think that's going to be a major discussion uh, coming up at, at the Fed. All this means the taper will be announced no later than um, uh, than the August uh, uh, Jackson Hole meeting. And in fact, uh, uh, many of the people will start leaking out that we're, you know, we're, we're planning the taper. Um and, and and they will schedule the taper. The, you know, uh, money supply is still not under control. M2 is still going up at 12% per year. Um, they've got to do something to keep that money under control. A taper is, is just step, you know, uh, you know, 0 0.01, uh, you know, in terms of raising rates right. and, 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 and making sure inflation is under control. And, and you still think some tremors might be? I mean, you yeah, see a little bit of the defensive point, rotation. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I still think that you know that, that well, as long as as the tenure is well behaved, the tapers will be muted. Um, as long as the money flows in, it's muted. So the, you know that you know the, there's so many trillions of excess reserves, so the Fed won't be given so much excess reserves. Now they are buying eighty you know billion dollars a month of treasuries. How much will their tapering of those buyings affect the rate? Somewhat, but I think the market's factored in. I think the demand is just a huge head demand. It's a loser trade as a you know, they want real assets in this sort of situation, but it's it's that short-term hedge, which is more and more powerful. More and more investors just want a short-term hedge. And, uh, you know, they're willing to pay huge insurance uh, policies for it. That's exactly what that 10-year is. And um, uh, I actually think we may invert the curve. I mean, yeah, yeah it stays at 1.5%. The Fed's going to have to go above 1.5% to slow the money supply eventually. So all those people that think they got curve steepeners on as a and on as an inflation and may find themselves very very surprised. Of course, in crowded trades, you find yourself surprised. Mm. Well, that'll yeah, be interesting. That'll be yeah. interesting. Well, Professor, that's always great to get your comments, and you're definitely one out there besides Bullard now uh, that's yeah. that's calling for this. So I appreciate that feedback. Thank you very much, Jeremy. I'm going to turn the conversation to Will Peck, who is the head of emerging technologies uh, focused on digital assets at Wisdom Tree, and also Dan Doney, the CEO of Securency. Dan, welcome back to Behind the Markets. Yeah, Jeremy, it's good to be back. Dan, so uh, Securency is a, a blockchain-based financial service company. You just did a, a large fundraising, um, and we've been a, a participant and, and one of the sort of lead investors from the, the previous Series A rounds. Maybe you could talk a little bit about Securency, what it is you're focused on to, to remind new listeners about what you, what you do and, and, uh, and, and the mission at Securency. We're focused on making blockchain networks uh, accessible to, to financial institutions. So uh, among the things that are essential, blockchain by itself does not include compliance functions. And unless you add the right tooling, um, you can run afoul of, of banking rules. 
So we add into and above the, the blockchain networks the kinds of capabilities that allow you to enforce uh, regulations in blockchain networks, and that makes it palatable for institutions to, to use the technologies. We offer uh, some other capabilities as well that are designed for institutional adoption of blockchain networks. Um, this has been a big part of our relationship with Wisdom Tree as we're working together to tokenize uh, funds within the space and um, bring high quality assets to institutional grade assets to, to the blockchain space. And our Series B round, of, uh, of course, includes uh, Stage Street and U.S. Bank, uh, as well as uh, a, a sovereign fund catalyst uh, from the UAE. What we're seeing there is the institutional uptake of, of blockchain. There's an opportunity to really retool the back office of banks to make them much more efficient, um, to reduce compliance costs and actually enhance uh, regulatory posture. So we're excited about um, those relationships. You, you've probably seen in the press, State Street is all in on, on digital transformation and the same thing with, with U.S. Bank. They believe that blockchain networks will fundamentally transform their business and they are uh, moving forward uh, aggressively. And of course, as you know, Wisdom Tree is as well, fully committed to this new space. I mean, that's really Dan, interesting. you're calling in from the UAE now, is that correct? That's right. So it's a little late here um, and uh, happy to connect. We're excited about the UAE. In, in, in much the same way, they're committed to a, a full digital transformation. Um, they have economies. They're looking to pivot off of uh, petrol-based uh, economies to the new uh, financial world. And so they're driving uh, aggressively in, into this space as well. They've made all the right moves. So they're emphasizing compliance on blockchain networks, and it's it's a place where we found to be to be home. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. I mean a lot of the the original discussion around blockchains was this anonymity and like are you skirting around compliance functions? And your core ethos is right the opposite of of making these compliance aware and connecting it. Um, any any commentary you want to give around around that and in, in, in the crypto ethos of of nominee versus yeah, compliance? We noticed, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a great observation. So of course, the early history of um, many of these networks included um, the, an emphasis on anonymity, anonymity, and in fact, we saw with things like Silk Road abuses uh, as a result of that anonymity. But in fact, blockchain networks offer a complete transparency of transactions. The piece that it's missing is identity. So if you're able to tie identity to those transactions, you actually get the perfect, the most easy to regulate financial service infrastructure. So currently in traditional banking infrastructure, when money cr transfers from one bank to another, when it crosses boundaries of banks and especially jurisdictions, now it's very difficult to trace that flow of value to prevent, for example, money laundering. But if on a blockchain network where all transactions can, can be transparent, you're able to know the identity of the participants, you actually have the perfect solution for regulators. It's that emphasis on identity and on regulatory, the ability to build into the tokens, the regulatory rules, so that only authorized transactions take place that make blockchain a much better network for financial transactions at global scale but you have to build in those tools. Otherwise, the channels are there. If you allow for anonymous transactions, always, whether it's with cash or other, you, this is where you see illicit activity um, uh, taking place. So unfortunately, for um, there is still misuse of blockchain networks. We're here to offer an alternative. I know this seems very inside baseball, but it was very actually in uh, kind of the front page of the newspapers recently with some of the... Uh, the ransomware attacks on, you know, whether it's meat processing or on the pipeline. I know, Dan, we didn't touch on it in this conversation yet, but you have a background in national security, and I'm sure some of that seemed very familiar to you. Kind of what did you think as all these news was coming out recently? And then obviously the FBI was able to enact a seizure on uh, some of the Bitcoin that was in a wallet, which I think to a lot of people seemed like a very kind of high-tech, crazy thing to be able to do. That was, I'm sure you have... Uh, 
a simpler explanation, but what was your take when those, that news came out? Yeah, this is the problem. So uh, th- when transactions are irreversible on a, on a blockchain ledger, so uh, Bitcoin, for example, is a bearer instrument. And what that means is if you if you are holding it, you have the ability to operate that wallet, it is yours. So that means if someone takes it from you by stealing the ability to operate your wallet, that cannot be reversed. There's nothing that can be done to, to take that transaction back. So it's awfully handy if you're conducting a ransomware attack and someone pays you in that Bitcoin, it can't be taken from you. Now, that's still true. So when the, the government was only able to seize about half of the, the value that was stolen, it happens when a party takes it to an exchange, say, to, to trade it in for dollars. And the government's able to recognize that transaction because you can see all the transactions that take place, contact the that operator and say, take that money, stop it, don't let it uh, go anywhere from there. And that's, in fact, what they did. So they weren't if, if that had stayed in the wallet or stayed um, transacting between other Bitcoin wallets, they uh, unfortunately, or they would not have been able to recover it. Fortunately, they were able to recover half. What we do is somewhat different. So our tokens have are, are built different in that they have a control location. Now, this doesn't mean that those tokens, you have to hold the, the keys to the, to the wallet so that people are holding those assets. But it, it means that if money is, if, if that value, if the wallet is lost or stolen um, or an illicit transaction takes place, the control location is able to pull back that value and issue it, reissue it to the, to the rightful owner. That's a major change in the space. Crypto purists don't like the model because um, they would say, well, if that party has that kind of control, then a government could coerce them to do something that, that we don't like. The bottom line is for financial instruments, the, the alternative is unacceptable. Um, and that is that, like, for example, the Canadian exchange, when the owner of the exchange was died, uh, he had the keys to, to all of his clients, $160 million worth of, of Bitcoin that they could no longer have access to. You could imagine with trillions of dollars of securities riding in a, in a network like this and a, a nation state attack, it's an unacceptable outcome for everyone to just throw up their hands and say, oh, I, you know, too bad we can't do anything about it. So that's why this alternative is the SEC actually insists on this model for securities. It makes makes it better. And, and I think it's actually underappreciated within the crypto community how for things like crypto dollars or stable coins that exist today that are issued by, you know, regulated U.S. entities, maybe it's not like the full control location like you're talking about here, but the different type of functionality that exists within that to do freeze transactions, to prevent wallets or value moving from one wallet to another in the case of a court order and the like actually exists today. And it's generally not discussed. Um, but there are examples in the past of, you know, governments needing to issue freeze orders against an anti-money laundering thing and one of the uh, crypto dollar issuers um, complying with those orders and uh, initiating a freeze on some wallets or tokens in circulation. It is just an, an interesting thing that I, I think is generally not appreciated about when you're moving from kind of what you could consider native uh, cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin or Ether that are inherent in the network and don't have any sort of tie back to any sort of physical asset versus when people are issuing tokens backed by dollars, let's say, when there inevitably is going to be, there's inherently needs to be some sort of kind of trust connectivity with like the existing financial system um, that a lot of these policies kind of are starting to be in place and people are issuing, um, you know, enacting this kind of functionality. Yeah. People will will say um, one of the principal benefits in in the eyes of many of of a network like blockchain is that it is like Bitcoin's blockchain is that it's censorship free. That is that governments can't um, come in and come out over top and and stop somebody because of whatever reason the government wants to to stop that party. And and that much is true. And that's a that's a great benefit, but it comes at a heavy cost that uh, is unacceptable is for, for securities transactions. That's, you know, uh, a point that we find valuable. But people then say, well, why blockchain 
if you're going to allow for reversible transactions? And the answer is pretty simple. It's accessibility. The wallets, the ease with which you can operate your value without an intermediary is a game changer at global scale. You still have those benefits, um, even with a, a clawback capability, and that allows innovation in terms of wallets, innovative use of value, all kinds of new combinations in decentralized finance that you see emerging. All of that's still there. Let me reintroduce our guests here. We're talking with Dan Doney, the CEO of Securency. We've got Will Peck, head of Emerging Technologies Strategy at Wisdom Tree. Um, Dan, it's sort of interesting on uh, sort of talking about the big banks, and and you sort of started alluding to some of the different things that that you might do with these these things. But but between State Street embracing digitization, U.S. Bank, what are the types of costs you think they're trying to rip out? Like where can Securency help? Uh, we sort of talked about tokenization. Is it tokenizing things, or is it other infrastructure that that they're leveraging your technology for? Yeah, it's actually the, the back office operations of banks where there's a massive opportunity to, to increase performance. I'll just give you an example. For Wisdom Trees funds, the, the act of um, creating new shares of those funds is a, an action that takes place at State Street. And um, when, when investors need more shares of that particular fund, there's trades that are executed behind the scenes to buy the shares that make up that, that fund. The processes involved in the execution of those trades are very inefficient um, as it stands. Now, these happen at millions of dollars worth of level, but it drives the actual cost of fund management. That ends up getting passed through as a fee to in investors. You can, through, through the use of smart contracts, you can automate all of those actions and they can occur effectively instantaneously in real time and not necessarily requiring human intervention. That significantly drives down the cost of, of asset management. Another big benefit of smart contracts, again, uh, and the use of blockchain, is in collateral management. So a lot of a, a bank's balance sheet is tied up in collateral. And tracking the value of that collateral and the, and the risk to the bank's overall infrastructure of, of the volatility of the underlying assets requires banks to hold a lot of money in abeyance. And that extra value on their balance sheet that they can't use, um, again, limits their ability to put the money to work. Through smart contracts, by automating, for example, the collateral function on uh, on, on trades, on securities lending, et cetera, you can radically improve their collateral management, and that changes their cost structure fundamentally. These are just examples. There's lots. That, that there's a term called DeFi, decentralized finance, and it's really about programmable value, automating the functions of a bank, and um, building it into the financial instruments themselves that's, that State Street, U.S. Bank, and other banks are, realize will fundamentally disrupt their business. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and, you know, when Jeremy and I have had other guests on in the past, you know, crypto hedge funds and the like talking about DeFi. And people, people typically think about DeFi as just kind of something totally outside of kind of any sort of institution compliance layer like a Uniswap, which is just code. Uh, that enables people to an automated market-making algorithm. People can make markets and essentially access a decentralized exchange. Um, and people tend to not think of DeFi as being associated with institutions when really one of the things that I, I thought was so uh, compelling about what Securency spoke about was this idea of institutional DeFi, taking these same ideas of self-processing code, um, you know, transparency and efficiency, and bringing them to institutional regulated uh, environments. And you actually get a lot of the same benefits. You can just do it in a different setting where people can be more comfortable exchanging value and the like. Um, I think that's a really interesting idea that not a lot of people necessarily think about or are focused on. Um, that I think over the next five, ten years in financial services, you're going to be seeing more and more people adopting ideas like that. 
in in terms of other so it's, it's it's really interesting on on will any other things you would say about how we have decided how we're you know dan i think previewed you know tokenizing different things um and in different assets any other things you would say about how we've thought about the currency as part of the wisdom tree mission and vision of of the future yeah i mean i actually i liked what our ceo uh jonas steinberg said recently on a panel thinking about it as DeFi broadly and being able to set ourselves up for a world where distributed and decentralized finance is more and more important in table stakes. And I always like to kind of, you know, people ask, well, who's asking for this? And I think the answer is, well, people are ask, always asking for things to be done cheaper and faster and more efficient, right? Um, and I think it's incumbent on a lot of businesses to figure out ways. You look at what Amazon has done with logistics to be able to deliver things cheaper, faster, more efficient. I think the idea of financial logistics and financial services providers figuring out ways to deliver their services, sorry for the background noise, in a better, faster, cheaper way. Um, so for Wisdom Tree, that's what it is, is we want to figure out how to deliver financial services, both what we do today, whether it's you know managing commodities or managing stocks, bonds, whatever it is. Um, and you know you can expand services from there. So we view this as kind of a important part of uh, future product development uh, that, you know, we're kind of fully committed to and early on the journey in terms of bringing that, you know, these services to our clients. Yeah, that, that wasn't Will's dog barking. That was actually me barking approval for what he's saying. <laughs> that it was exactly right. Look, you, know, you don't have to look further than um, the challenges in, in our financial markets in terms of settlement, where we have T plus two settlement and moving to T plus one settlement, and despite all the effort and, and money that is spent attempting to, to solve that problem, we're, you, you could say, why aren't we at T zero? The challenge is reconciling all the databases of the financial participants that are in the ecosystem. That's what results in delayed settlement. Well, you may say, well, I don't really care about delayed settlement. There's huge costs that are that are driven through to investors as a result of this. And the only viable solution to this problem is consensus between ledgers. That's actually what blockchain is all about, is a consensus ledger. It's the solution to these problems and many others in terms of efficient, reliable uh Real-time settlement, right? That's what got Robinhood in trouble. Like earlier this year, they had to raise capital because of the meme stocks and and the trading, and then they had to stop trading certain things because of this issue, right? That is sort of a real practical question. Like what? So what? Right Go, Go ahead, ahead, Dan. Sorry. Yeah, and the folks who get got left holding the bag in that case was the little guys. You know, the the retail investors who are actually left holding holding the bag whenever. Um, Robin had had to stop trading. So these are problems that have have real impacts. Congress knows this needs to get fixed. The SEC needs, knows it needs to get fixed. And the answer is actually there. So I mean, I thought it's so funny when the Robinhood stuff was happening. Like you never thought that like you know uh, securities depository settlement would be like such a national story that it was at the time. And you know those things. You never. It's only in the news when it's bad news. But. I remember thinking like, oh, is this some sort of big conspiracy or not? And there's probably a simpler Occam's razor answer that it was a uh, collateral <laughs> like uh, operational issue behind the scenes, which it was. Well, I want to come back to this topic. You know, there's this quick answer like Bitcoin solves this. <laughs> I want to see which blockchain solves this this issue. Um, you're listening to Behind the Markets. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Uh, you know, Dan, we're talking about the Robinhood issue where settlement issues, um, sort of real time settlement versus the few days settlement. And, and it caused a lot of disruption having to shut off trading for a number of, of the people at Robinhood. And we were saying that that blockchain fixes this. Is, is there a particular technology in particular you think that might be a practical solution for these things like Robinhood? Who has to put these solutions in place? How long till we get to this real time issue? Yeah, we have taken an approach in the market of being what we call ledger agnostic. So the, our, our compliance tools uh, and all of our other tooling is independent of the underlying distributed ledger. You can, you can use, pick your choice of favorite distributed ledgers. So we're in a position to actually speak you know, about which ledgers we like and, and don't like because we're not dependent on any, any one of them. But the thing that you should first keep in mind is just like there are many database technologies, there are many distributed ledger technologies. 
and there are many characteristics of a distributed ledger technology. So you couldn't say um, there's ever one distributed ledger technology that's best for every problem. Let me just give you an example. Um, distributed ledgers uh, operate at different speeds. They have different consensus models. So if you like pure decentralization, that is censorship-free type of value, what you sacrifice is speed, and you oftentimes have expensive transactions that go along with that. So Bitcoin's ledger is slow, has a massive environmental impact, but it is censorship-free, and uh, so that people like that trade-off in, in some cases. Other ledgers like Ethereum support smart contracts that allow you to have programmable money, but uh, they are shifting their consensus model. They could not, at, at the current uh, la layer one solution, I'll explain a little bit what that, that means, they couldn't support the full, they can only support in the order of hundreds of transactions per second. You can't run a financial economy on hundreds of transactions per second. So you need distributed ledger technologies that move much faster than, than that. We happen to work with Stellar on uh, many of our projects because they're fast and very low cost ledger to, to use. They can support much more massive scale. There are other ledgers that you see coming online uh, like Hedera's Hashgraph that su can support the full burden of a, a financial economy given uh, their particular model. So it's a great candidate for to run a, a, an economy. But our, our belief is there won't be one that if there ever is only one distributed ledger that you run everything on, and then first of all, it's uh, a horrific opportunity for attack, but it's also um, the end of innovation because there's no competition in the space. So we expect continued evolution uh, of distributed ledgers. So it's not a great answer. The bottom line is it shouldn't matter which of the distributed ledgers uh, solve this problem. And you said um, layer one, Dan, just for some of the listeners, that gets uh, layer one, layer two gets kind of tossed around a lot, particularly with Ethereum. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and how people end up kind of building scale on top of kind of these existing public ledgers using layer two solutions and what are some of the pros and cons of doing that? Um, yeah, so the the layer one solution is the, the, the native network. Um, it, let's say, for example, Ethereum that's governed by its consensus protocol. And again, um, currently it's fairly trans, um, uh, expensive to conduct transactions on Ethereum, especially complex transactions where there's a lot of logic built into to the asset. And that makes it prohibitive for, mi for micro payments. The layer, and the reason for that is there's only so many transactions you can fit into a block on that distributed ledger. It's possible to have a second distributed ledger that runs where there's a linkage between those two ledgers. And that transact that ledger can run much faster, much cheaper. All of the transactions that take place on that second la layer two solution can then be stamped the hash and um, recorded on the layer one uh, distributed ledger. The layer two solution may have a different consensus protocol um, than, than the layer one and therefore can operate much faster. So this allows you to do things that still have the benefit of a global consensus, that is the reconciliation that blockchain affords, but where you can um, address the cost. All of this is to say there's a lot of innovation going on in the blockchain space. Some of the things that people criticize blockchain for not being able to do, guess what? There's lots of smart people working on solutions, and they're resolving these um, very quickly with, with clever solutions. And as a result, the, the basic criticism of blockchain that you wouldn't be able to run a national economy is simply it, it's quickly falling by the wayside. So, Will, maybe we can go to, you know, we, we talked a little bit about Ethereum here and, and some of the, one of the, it's one of the more interesting cryptos as a second behind Bitcoin in terms of the market value. Um, it's, it's got some big changes happening. Um, Dan, do you want to, you mentioned sort of this, this environmental cost of proof of work um, and, and validating those transactions, sort of the, they may be moving to proof of stake. They're talking about changing how they 
burn, their fees and different things. Anything on, on the Ethereum transition you, you'd highlight for, for folks? Yeah, we're, we're excited about the, the changes there. So let's um, start with the difference between proof of work and, and proof of stake. In, in proof of work, the, the, the consensus model for stamping the network is done by uh, computational work. And this is done to ensure that the, tr- the transactions are fair and secure. That, that model, unfortunately, the side effect of that model is you have computers and data centers around the world who are all racing to perform those calculations. They're rewarded by receiving, uh, say, Ethereum or Bitcoin for doing that work that is securing the network. But they're using a massive amount of power. Bitcoin's network, I think there's only 10 countries in the world that use more electricity than, than Bitcoin's network together. That's absurd. It's not worth the cost. And this is, there's ESG concerns about uh, that, that model. Take, on the other hand, proof of stake is a, an alternative model for securing a network. And it effectively comes down to this. People who have a stake in that network that is the holders of the tokens, actually get to vote for consensus. And the incentive for them to be fair um, and to to make sure that no cheating takes place is the fact that they're holding a lot of that value that they will undermine if they aren't um, honest in their consensus model. So they're incentivized to actually keep uh, accurate consensus on, on the network. That's a different model. It doesn't require the computational expense that proof of work has, and it will significantly reduce the energy usage um, associated with securing these networks. So that's a welcome change from our view. It also happens to make the networks faster and cheaper to operate. Yeah, it is really interesting to track, and I know that it comes at the expense, like you said at the start, of decent, well, potentially decentralization. And it would be hard just to launch a decentralized proof-of-stake network from scratch, but Ethereum going from a decentralized proof-of-work model transitioning to a decentralized proof-of-stake model, there is some question as to how much it, you know, um, it uh, impinges on the decentralization of the network going forward where people will just be able to control it who are large holders. But that'll be some, certainly something interesting to see out over time. And then to your point on the different competition of these ledgers, Competition, maybe one word, but just different use cases for the, the ledgers. The idea of Bitcoin as just the calculator has proven to be very robust to attacks, to uh, you know any sort of efforts to kind of impinge on the decentralization. Uh, and the proof-of-work model lends itself to it at the cost of lots of energy usage, which we can have a whole conversation about ways that, that energy can be made more cheaply for Bitcoin, but it certainly is energy-intensive compared to other networks. Um, so it's exciting to kind of monitor, and there's always seems to be a lot going on in this space, and a lot of capital certainly is uh, chasing a lot of these opportunities with it. Let me just reintroduce our guests here one more time. We've got Dan Doney, CEO of Currency, Will Peck, of, of Head of Emerging Technologies at Wisdom Tree. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Um, it, Dan, did you want to say something before I cut you off there? Yeah, certainly the Elon Musk and uh, his the, his move in and out as he was concerned he expressed concern about the ESG the environmental impact of, of Bitcoin made a lot of news. People have then come back and said, "Well, look, we're using renewable sources to produce the power." My view on that is, you're using power that could have been used somewhere else. So even if it's coming from renewable sources, that's not solving the problem of using a lot of power. And um, so, again, we're, we're excited to see a movement in a different direction. I mean, I, just to take a little bit of an alternative, the only time that wouldn't be the case is if it's power that might otherwise be wasted, which is one thing that's interesting about Bitcoin and blockchains in general is the ability to convert, like, you know, stranded methane emissions from, like, a stranded oil well or something kind of crazy like that, which you actually are seeing at least anecdotally examples of um, that being the case, which is kind of a a very innovative and showing kind of the power of a lot of people chasing economic opportunity, the things they'll come up with. Uh, But it certainly is undeniable that uh, Bitcoin consumes energy and hopefully with the ban in uh, mining in China, which may come at some cost of decentralization, but it will see an improved environmental profile of Bitcoin. And kind of the other interesting note is 
you, compared to what? Like how much energy does the existing financial services ecosystem actually end up using compared to the security and transactions of Bitcoin, which is a interesting question to investigate. So I find a lot of the uh, the public literature on it and, you know, that comes up in the mainstream media to be a little misleading. And I think there's actually really interesting questions about it, even acknowledging that Bitcoin does have an environmental impact. We've talked about some of the infrastructure of banks that could be changing with the new blockchain services. But we've also, uh, you know, this week is an interesting conversation. You had Powell testifying. Uh, we talked about the inflation at the beginning, but he also was, was testifying really about digital currencies, central bank digital currencies come up uh, as a topic. Um, globally, it's not just the U.S. phenomena. People are exploring this around the world. And, and you just talk about China, Bitcoin mining. They've they've been at the forefront of exploring digital currencies and and really to track people in a way i mean i think that's sort of they they like control and tracking and your point on this stuff is fully trackable um you know that that might be one of the angles there what, what any commentary you might dan give on on developments in the central bank digital currency world and and what you see taking place yeah well it's certainly very exciting there's more than 30 countries now who are leaning into the to the concept of uh central bank digital currency and uh, China's in, in the lead in, in their efforts. Um, you can see the benefit of a central bank digital currency. Imagine when uh, the relief payments were made as a COVID response, where the government, it, it was just hard to get the money out and you know money's lost along the way. Imagine being able to simply issue those tokens and deliver them direct without intermediaries to, uh, to citizens. Um, It'd be remarkable. Lots of cost savings. You, you could do a lot with that as as uh, as a government. So it's it's a powerful piece. But I would say central bank digital currencies, in the end, uh, that represents M zero. That is the cash su supply, and M zero is a small part of the full money supply. So in other words, when people deposit their dollars into the bank and then the bank turns around and lends those dollars, you have the deposit in the bank M1 and then um, additional uh, supply of money beyond that. Most money is above M0. And um, so even with central bank digital currencies, there will continue to be things like stable coins. Stable coin is just M1. It's uh, money that's deposited at the bank and a token is issued against this, that, that model will continue to persist. There's lots of advantages to stable coins and CBDC in terms of efficient operation of, of banking structures and programmable mon money, et cetera. There's a race right now. China understands the importance of these networks, and so, again, they've leaned in on live pilots. So they, there is, they've been using digital yuan for some time now. What they see is the opportunity to displace the dollar in international transactions. So there's a great opportunity for them and in their eyes to make it easier for folks in Africa to do transactions. And man, you don't want to use those dollars. Um, it's, just, uh, it's hard to work with those U.S. banks. Let me give you some great tools. So there's a race on, and I, China's openly said that there's a, uh, that that's their intent. Russia, others, sort of a financial cold war going on around the use of these technologies. What you can know is this does change banks. So if you're a bank and suddenly a number of governments are using central bank digital currencies and you don't aren't able to handle them in your banking infrastructure in a few years, you'll be left behind. So this is banks see this coming and they know they need to retool. I think this is one of the most fascinating kind of public policy conversations going on today. And there's so many different angles when you start to kind of understand it about kind of different ways that you could construct a, you know, a U.S. digital dollar where, you know, there's one idea that would this just totally could this displace banks because, you know, no one would need to have a checking account anymore. The idea about you don't want to hold cash in your mattress, so you take it to a bank and deposit it, and that's what allows the banking system to function that gets totally upended if you can just hold on to digital dollars in a wallet yourself, um, where you essentially anyone, you, me, kind of um, your neighbor could have central bank money. Uh, totally new idea beyond what was previously done in the past, uh, which has a lot of implications, as people have pointed out. So it's not like a central bank digital 
currency would necessarily mean that. Like there are different models where they can be, um, you know, sent to banks and it's essentially more of infrastructure and you get a Bank of America dollar instead of like a U.S. central bank dollar, but the Bank of America dollar is backed by that and it keeps the existing banking system, multi-tiered banking system as they talk about. But just kind of digging in on this, it takes me back a lot to kind of introduction to micro macroeconomics and understanding how economies work. And there's very, you're starting to see it kind of in real time, uh, the debate around this. I also think there's a, a very interesting debate. You know, some of the kind of crypto purists are very skeptical of central bank digital currencies, saying that the need for having dollars on blockchains can be met with privately issued stable coins. And the U.S. doesn't need to be replicating what a, the, the Chinese uh, Communist Party is doing with the digital yuan. I, I think that's an interesting discussion. I, I think the U.S. has a lot of policy concerns, like you were saying, Dan. I mean, the supremacy of the U.S. dollar as the global reserve currency just has so much importance uh, to the U.S. economy and U.S. foreign policy that the risk of it, of losing that status, would be very, very you know, harmful to the U.S. interests. So I, I see why the U.S. is interested in pursuing it. Um, not that I know what the right answer is, but uh, it sounds like, Dan, you think there's a model going forward where you will see kind of both of these uh, U.S. central bank dollar and stable coins kind of continue to coexist or kind of work into the, in, in cooperation. Yeah, that's right. Well, so the, the reason you deposit your money in a bank is so that you can earn interest, even though um, at zero interest rates, uh, you wouldn't get that. But that, that's the benefit of that deposit. Or, or safety, right? The idea being that it's safer than putting your money in a mattress, right? Um, yeah. That's kind of been the other alternative convenience when interest rates have gone to zero, as they've been for 10 years now. Yeah, so custody and um, interest. Now, by definition, a central bank digital currency deposited somewhere else, it, you can only, the nice thing about blockchain is you can't make up value. There will only be so many of those, but as they're deposited into a bank and then you have them as an IOU against that value, they're then loaned out. And that process is uh, takes you from CBDC to stablecoin. And so we actually see that there will continue to be those things for, for the reasons that you spe- specify. Both, both models are necessary. Things like Circle, they're making great progress as USDC has a, a massive uptake, I think more than $50 billion worth of assets under management in a digital dollar. Um, and it, it is great for blockchain transactions. I mean, I think that's one of the most under-talked about stories in kind of traditional finance even is, you know, a year and a half ago, stablecoins outside of Tether had, you know, maybe less than a billion dollars in them in total. And then USDC has just grown through the roof. I mean, a lot of the use cases for it today are around crypto trading and arbitrage between markets. But I know Circle and others are building up much more connectivity into the existing financial systems. Like you see Visa saying that they'll honor USDC as like a reserve currency or whatever the title is within their network. Um, These things are happening kind of, I think, faster than a lot of people are expecting. Um, Why Wisdom Tree is so focused on uh, on this, because we see it coming uh, sooner than many do. In, ter- in terms of the traditional banks there, I mean, there's some who've talked about that the central bank digital currency sort of, in a way, you know, questions their existence. If you could open up an, an account directly with the, you know, the central bank, does that does that put the traditional banks out of business in, in some way? I think the answer is no, because an important banking function is lending, and uh, lendings are a regulated function. Again, a central bank digital currency uh, is something that is immediately available. So if I hold, if I were holding a digital dollar, I can spend that digital dollar and as many as I have. With with, when you loan out that dollar, you can, you can't spend it uh, immediately. Someone else has it, and that function of managing the lending piece is what banks do what they generate as a result of that is interest on those loans that gets passed through to depositors. That's a necessary function that you can't do with a central bank digital currency by itself. It requires something on top of that. That's going to persist. It's not going away. 
And then there's all these new DeFi it's, apps that are trying to, right. There's all these new apps that are going to try to automate that lending protocol. And, and there's some, some really interesting returns that, that are being talked about in that lending world today. There are. Now, the, the one thing that you could question is um, the security and safety of the, who's regulating or overseeing those applications. As you see almost on a weekly basis, um, losses, thefts, attacks, rug pools uh, for that money. We believe it needs to be regulated. DeFi needs to be regulated. There need to be accountable parties associated with this. But even there, lending. So that dollar gets, I deposit it into a DeFi protocol, USDC, say. It gets lend out. What if everyone wants to pull back their dollars from that lending uh, pool all at once? Are they there? No, of course not. They're being loaned out. How much is being loaned out? You don't know. This, these are the kinds of things that you... The banks have certain requirements. They have reserve requirements they have to keep in line to prevent runs. Without regulation, how do you know um, the impact of these things? And that's where, again, we think there's a great opportunity for institutional DeFi. I mean, we've talked about this in the past, Jeremy, but uh, I have so many friends come to me saying, oh, I'm seeing advertising somewhere for 10% yields on you know, U.S. dollars through these stable coins. And I got it. It's, you know, there's no free lunch in financial services, right? There is counterparty risk in there, um, and uh, you start to see it. I mean, Mark Cuban had kind of an embarrassing thing recently where he was playing around with this, and he got you know kind of defrauded or something like that. So there is always, I, I guess, the, the no free lunch lesson continues to apply. We're, we're in our final minute here. Any sort of closing thoughts, Dan? Things that you want to leave listeners with about the currency? Thirty seconds on on where they can find you or, or who should be reaching out. Yes. So check us out at Securency.com. Securency is S-E-C-U-R-R-E-N-C-Y. So S-E plus currency. Check us out there. Um, some big announcements coming in the near future uh, as we're bringing some new products to market. Very good. And, uh, and Will, always, uh, you're, you're, you're writing more on the Wisdom Tree blog. So if you go to the WisdomTree.com blog, cryptocurrency evolution of, of crypto assets page, you'll find commentary from Will, myself, our team. Uh, thank you for joining us, Dan and Will. Thanks to our producer, Dion Simpkins, our producer, Patty Hall. You can find us on our Behind the Markets podcast every week. Have a great weekend, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. Insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.